This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Moyers and Company, The Young Turks, The David Pakman Show, The Good Fight, and The Tom Hartman Program. And if you can make it through all of the bad news, I promise there is some inspiring news at the end, so stick around for that. What happens when two college professors leave the theories of the classroom behind for the real world of bare-knuckle politics? Well, they learn a lesson the hard way. Just ask Zephyr Teachout and Larry Lessig. Each is an outstanding scholar. She teaches constitutional and property law at Fordham Law School here in New York and recently published this highly acclaimed book, Corruption in America, from Benjamin Franklin's Snuffbox to Citizens United. Larry Lessig teaches law at Harvard and directs that university's Edmund J. Saffer Center for Ethics. Both champion free and fair competition in our economy and our elections. Zephyr Teachout ran for governor of New York in the Democratic primary against incumbent and friend of Wall Street, Andrew Cuomo. My name is Zephyr Teachout. I'm running in the Democratic primary for the governor of the state of New York. A political unknown with no money, she surprised just about everyone, including Cuomo, by getting more than a third of the votes. A good showing given that he spent $60.62 for each of his votes, while she could only spend $1.57. But, nonetheless, still a defeat. Larry Lessig decided to fight fire with fire. He raised several million dollars for a super PAC called May Day and backed congressional candidates who favor reducing the influence of money in politics over those who just can't get enough of that sweet campaign cash. If he could prove that people care enough about corruption to have it make the difference when they vote, it might become politically toxic for politicians to oppose reform. But Lessig lost too. His six picks in truly competitive races went down to defeat. So Larry Lessig and Zephyr Teachout are back in class for now. But ring the bell. Word has it they have only begun to fight. Welcome to both of you. Thanks for having us. Yeah. So you tried nobly to challenge the system from inside, and it didn't work out for either of you. Was it naive? No, I actually think we got a lot done. I mean, I'd love to be governor right now, but we showed that people out there, there's a sleeping giant out there of people who actually want a true, responsive democracy. But your money didn't wake that giant up. Well, you know, I mean, the, the critics have been gloating, of course. They call me an egghead. They say it's a complete failure. Look, they're right about me being an egghead. There's no doubt about that. Um, but it wasn't a failure in the sense that the data we have shows that people care about this issue. Zephyr's campaign, I think, showed that. But in the races that we were in, we moved people to care about this issue and to vote on the basis of this issue. Now, of course, not enough to overcome the tsunami um, of Republican victories. Obviously, we were not able to overcome that, but this is an issue that really rallies people because they are so tired of the corruption of the system. So what did you learn new about money that you hadn't known in your long and thorough examination of corruption in America? I knew that candidates have to spend half their time or more fundraising, um, and I knew how corrupting that was. What I didn't realize is how, in some ways, humiliating it is. Um, yeah that you feel like a vacuum cleaner salesman or something. You're sitting in a room 
uh, with your fundraiser, making dial after dial. You're supposed to dial 30 times uh, an hour. Um, you're supposed to hit a quarter of your calls. And if, if people are sort of dispirited with the leadership we have now, I think it's in part because we're selecting leaders based on who is good at sitting in that room being a vacuum cleaner salesman, um, as opposed to traditional understandings of leadership, which is who has uh, real ideas about how to change things, who has special capacities for inspiration or management. What did you learn about money you didn't know? Well, I think that one thing we saw is how fearful the powerful are yeah. um, to stand up against the system. I remember reading the story. This is a Silicon Valley high-tech tycoon. When he got word that you were taking on Fred Upton, who oversees the committee that has jurisdiction over his company, he got nervous? Well, there's a couple stories here. One is the people who actually contributed uh, got nervous. They were anxious to quickly distance themselves from our attack on Fred Upton. But just before um, all of that happened, we had a very large donor who was willing to give us a very large amount of money and then heard that we were going to take on Fred Upton and said, we can't be on the wrong side of Fred Upton. And so we have this system where people are afraid, even the richest are afraid to step up against this power because they know the way in which the power and I think I actually think we have a, a lot of fear in our politics now in ways that people sense it's a sense that politicians know that they aren't really in control that their donors are and it's that's a scary feeling yeah. that that lack of that lack of power and I, I think you know you see somebody like Elizabeth Warren or others who speak fearlessly and there's genuine excitement around that too often, um, I think Democrats just focus on like the message box. What is the correct message to say? As opposed to really engaging in leadership itself and the fearlessness that's required there. Loris Lessig's PAC, uh, Mayday PAC, is terrific. What they want to do is they want to get out corruption, right? So well, they've done something fairly smart, which is to say, hey, listen, if you're taking a lot of donor money and you're fighting against any kind of campaign finance reform, you're fighting every effort to get money out of politics, you like money in politics, you're a, an incumbent, you've taken money, and then you've done the bidding of those donors. Well, we're going to come for you because we want to be like, for lack of a better example, like the NRA. You know that if you cross the NRA as a politician, there's going to be consequences, right? So they're saying now, if you cross the American people and you are corrupt, there's going to be consequences. We're going to spend a lot of money to get you out of politics. I actually love the plan, right? Now, turns out that the politicians that they're spending the money against don't like it. And prime example is Fred Upton, who's apparently up to no good. And he does not like that Mayday Pack has come for him. When they start squealing, to me, that's good news that you're being effective. 
they've spent anywhere between one and a half to two million dollars against Fred Upton. Now he's a very powerful guy in the House. He runs the Energy and Commerce Committee, and there's a lot of donors that'd be interested in that committee. So now that they've heard him a little bit and they've got his attention, he's going to go fight back. Now, how is he going to fight back? Well, in the most ironic way possible, by threatening to be more corrupt. So we go to the Huffington Post for an explanation here. According to people familiar with the situation, committee staff director and former super lobbyist Gary Andrus personally has been calling the CEOs of major Silicon Valley tech companies, hammering them for coming after Upton and spooking Mayday's donors who worry their companies will get rougher treatment when and if Upton survives. How do you like this for irony? Oh, you're accusing me of being corrupt? Well, I'm going to send my super lobbyist after you. And he's going to threaten you that if you don't play ball, when I get in office, I'm not going to care about policy. I don't care about my ideology. All I'm going to do is be vindictive and try to make sure that your efforts at rooting out corruption are met with further corruption against you. Okay, great. Well, thank you for proving our point, Fred Upton. Uh, well, let's go to the candidate himself. Let's go to his quotes and see what he has to say. He says, I do know that some of the folks that funded the PAC, and as I've talked to them, they are or they were under the illusion that this was a group that was trying to focus on dysfunction and taking it out, getting people that can work together. And the people that I've talked to, some of them have put six figures into this PAC, they are really ashamed. They are distraught. They said they were taken for a ride. It's too late. They bought the stuff, and it came out of the blue. Nothing came out of the blue. Mayday PAC was incredibly clear. They said they would sp spend it against incumbents that are fighting against campaign finance reform. The people who want to keep money in politics, put it in their pocket, use it for their campaigns, and they do the bidding of their donors. That's Fred Upton, in a nutshell. They're doing exactly what they were supposed to do. Now, I don't know if what he's relaying about the donors is true or untrue, but it seems like an old mafia move, right? You go and you have a conversation and you make an offer you can't refuse. You remember, if I win in the committee, you're going to have a lot of issues. You sure you want to donate that way? Why don't you come out here and tell us how ashamed you are? So if that wasn't specific enough, well, they got specific on issues. Andres, the super lobbyist, also argued that Upton has been one of the few Republicans in favor of immigration reform, which the Silicon Valley crowd has spent millions pushing. He's talking about the Silicon Valley donors that gave to Mayday Pack. And one of the things they care most about is the immigration issue. They want to be able to bring engineers from all over across the world who have expertise that they can use in their companies and grow their companies. And what he's saying is, how dare you give money against me? So because of that, I will kill your initiatives that you care about. Unless, of course, you change your mind and you give me even more money. And if you bribe me appropriately, then you might get the immigration reform that you want. Well, thank you for clarifying exactly what we're fighting against. So now, one last piece of this. In his calls with the CEOs, Andres told donors that Mayday was picking the wrong target in Upton. Upton played a role in passing Chase Meehan, the House version of the McCain-Feingold campaign finance reform bill that the Supreme Court later gutted. Now, is it true that he's actually in favor of campaign finance reform? Absolutely not. I'm going to prove that to you in a second. Okay, But why is he saying that? Oh, so it turns out that if we do make an issue out of this, then all of a sudden, you're going to turn around and go, yeah, but if I was for campaign finance reform. Yeah, of course I want to get money out of politics. Sure I do. So it turns out Larry Lessig was right. 
that if you actually get realistic in politics and you spend money against these politicians and all of a sudden they get scared of you, they turn around and go, yeah, of course, yeah, I was on your side. I don't know why you, I don't know why you're even hitting me. Sure, of course. How do we get money out of politics? Oh, interesting. All of a sudden. Now I say all of a sudden because here's his real record. An advisor to the Mayday Pact countered that Upton, whatever his passport, has not signed on to any of the campaign finance reform bills, either Democratic or Republican ones, now in Congress. Upton also voted against the Disclose Act, which would have rolled back some of the Citizens United, the Supreme Court decision he says he disagreed with. <laughs> well, he's got a funny way of disagreeing with the decision. He will not roll back any of it. So you have the proper context. The Disclose Act just says, hey, continue to take bribes. Just tell us who's giving you the money. It should be the easiest reform possible. In fact, even in Citizens United, Justice Kennedy said, well, obviously they'll disclose their donors. Well, it turns out it's not obvious because of corrupt politicians like Fred Upton who don't want to disclose their donors. And if any donor goes against them, will promise vengeance and payback and strike back. This is exactly the kind of politics as usual that Mayday Pack, our pack, Wolf Pack is fighting against. Okay? We're both united in fighting against these forces of corruption. So don't believe a f word of what Fred Upton says, except the part where he threatens you. That part he's very serious about. Do you think that elections run by and for donors give voters a false sense of power, a false sense of control over our democratic process? I, I think that um, in the last decade or so, I mean, really since the early 90s, there's been a real shift to candidates focusing and, and serving donors. And if you have to spend half your day talking to donors or 70% of your day t talking to donors and then turn around and give a speech engaging people on the issues that matter to them, their you know, dental care, credit cards, you know, the um, a real difficulty finding a job, it, it's, it feels false because it's hard to have those two conversations at the same time. And gradually I think people have gotten more and more disillusioned because they feel like they aren't being served. They're being sort of spoken to superficially but fundamentally not listened to. And I, I don't not blame Not democratic them. then. It's not democratic. And, and no. if, if elections are not democratic, can we get anything else right or is it just all cosmetic? Well, we've got to make it democratic oh, yes. first. I mean, but it's not. A, you both yeah, have said it's, it's not. It's, it's a, it's a donor-driven election. It's, yes, yeah. yes. I mean, we have the data to show this now. There was a Princeton study by Martin Gillens and Ben mm -hmm. Page, the largest empirical study of actual policy decisions by our government in the history of our government. And what they did is they related our actual decisions to what the economic elite care about, what the organized interest groups care about, and what the average voter care about. And when they look at the economic elite, you know, as the percentage of economic elite who support an idea goes up, the probability of it passing goes up. Yeah. As the organized interest care about something more and more, the probability of it passing goes up. But as the average voter cares about something, it has no effect 
at all, statistically no effect at all on the probability of it passing. If we can go from 0% of the average voters caring about something to 100%, and it doesn't change the probability of it actually being enacted. And when you look at those numbers, that graph, this flat line, that flat line is a metaphor for our democracy. Our democracy is flatlined because when you can show clearly there's no relationship between what the average voter cares about, only if it happens to coincide with what the economic elite care about, you've shown that we don't have a democracy anymore. And, and we don't, but we have still this, these forms that allow for access to power. I mean, I, I look and I'm really inspired by what's happening in Hong Kong. And those young students would do so much to have the access to the levers of power that we have now. So I think of it more like where we were in 1901 or 1902, where we had formal access to power. But, you know, if you and I were talking then, we'd be just as dispirited. You know, the big trusts really ran politics. I bet if there was a Princeton study of 1901, of you'd find a flatline relationship between what people wanted and what what was happening, and yet uh, what you saw is this you know, decades-long um, populist effort finally finding fruit in uh, the Tillman Act, the 1907 right. law, which banned direct corporate um, uh, contributions to campaigns. Um, and so I find hope, actually, from history, because we've had this disconnect between democracy and our formal rules before. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or Amazon.co.uk from the banner at bestofleft.com to shop at just one of the major companies with the insatiable profit incentive to help perpetuate the destructive paradigm of overconsumption and exploitative capital. Better yet, go ahead and click through to the Amazon site that serves your country just once, and then bookmark it to use every time you shop, which should be as rarely as possible. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumerism altogether, or at least consuming in a subversive way. We also, unfortunately, have to come to terms with the reality that the United States is not really an actual democracy anymore. There's a new study from Princeton. Researchers Martin Gillens and Ben Page argue that over the last few decades, the system of government here in the United States has moved from being a democracy to being an oligarchy where wealthy elites essentially hold power. An oligarchy, of course, defined as a small group of people having control of a country, organization, or institution. And we talked about this in the past because there was a study a few months ago, you may remember, where we uh, told you that uh, the study analyzed what are the policy desires of different groups of people, the average middle-class voter, the average wealthy voter, the average big corporation, the lobbyist. And as it turned out, the desires, the policy desires of the average middle-class voter those desires were not reflected in the legislation that was actually passed. However, the desires of lobbyists, intellectual, uh, uh, economic elites, really rich people, 
uh, big corporations, those policy desires were reflected and they were far more likely to be reflected in our legislation. So that was a hint that this is the direction things were going. And now it has been all but confirmed. Using data drawn from 1,800 different policy initiatives over the period ranging from 1981 to 2002, this study uh, uh, determined that rich, well-connected individuals on the political scene now steer the direction of the country. As one uh, illustration, they compare the political preferences of Americans at the 50th income percentile to those at the 90th percentile, as well as lobbying groups and business groups, and they find that regardless of Republican-Democrat, putting that aside for a second here, more often than not, legislation is following the desires of those at the 90th, percent, uh, 90th percentile of income rather than the 50th percentile of income. And remember, there are far fewer people at that point on the income spectrum. So I, I'm not surprised. It's disgusting. But the reality is we don't really have a, a, a democracy here, representative democracy. No. Um... I don't really even know. We've never really been a true democracy. It's always been a republic, so I don't even like to use the word, the term democracy. But yeah, of course, it's, it's an oligarchy. I mean, not because necessarily rich people are influencing policy, but the rich people and the influential people make sure the person they want to get into office gets into office. Well, but that's still an indirect influence of policy. I mean, it may not indirect. be that them direct. Yeah. And you know what's interesting? The data here looks at 1981 to 2002. So we actually have a period of post-Citizens United that is not included in this. And I would be very curious to know whether this discrepancy has actually gotten even worse since then. In other words, would we see an even more disproportionate preference for the legislation that's preferred by the rich rather than the middle class now that we've had several years of Citizens United, I wouldn't be surprised at all if that were the case. So we start with Larry Lessig waking up on Wednesday morning, November 5th, the day after the midterm elections. Well, it was a, it was a devastating wake up um, because I'd gone to bed pretty early. We knew a bunch of races were going to be just too close. And I woke up at, um, I think, four or five and looked at the results and just could not believe that across the country... Um, there had been this uh, tidal wave. It was the tsunami, and uh, of course, we were swept up in what everybody else was swept up in, and I was stunned. So in that morning, as, as you were looking at this tidal wave of results, did you feel like this whole thing had been a mistake? No. I mean, you know, you'll remember when we first talked about this, and you said, what will victory look like? Victory is about demonstrating that we can move people on the basis of this issue. Everything hung, hangs on what the data shows us about why people did what they did. Um, so in the morning after, I knew we'd obviously lost, which meant in the kind of, you know, 
four-second attention span of most um, journalism about this kind of issue, we'd lost big. Uh, but from my perspective, the question wasn't really what the journalists or what you know sort of flash media would think about it. It's what the data shows about whether, in fact, people care about this issue. And, and that I knew we were going to have to wait until we saw um, results from polling that we had been starting on Tuesday night and we're continuing all day Wednesday. Well, then today we're going to do the non-four-second attention span version of the story. Before we go to the data, we should bring people up to speed. First, you set this goal of raising $5 million in small donations on the Internet to fight corruption, which a lot of people thought was crazy and would not work. Yeah, everyone was convinced. And for most of those 30 days, I was convinced was insane and would not work. But you'll remember, um, uh, on July 4th at uh, 9.15 or so in the evening, just as the fireworks were going off, we crossed the $5 million mark. And then your plan was to raise another $5 million from very rich people to match the first five. How did that go? Um, that was a complete failure. It was incredibly difficult to even get these people to talk about the idea of stepping up and demonstrating their commitment to reform. And I spent the most miserable two and a half or three months from beginning of July um, through the middle of October when we just finally called an end to it. Um, going around to people, uh, you know, and making this case again and again and again, and um, and just, you know, not finding the people that I thought we were going to find. Of course, you eventually did get past the $10 million mark, although you had to do it in a much more difficult way. Thank goodness, though, the small donors totally came through, and they made up the gap. You got to $10 million, and then you got to the next phase, where you hired on some political professionals to actually run the campaigns, and you jumped into the fray. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about one particular candidate that you backed because he was kind of emblematic of everything that both went right and went wrong with May Day. Before the general election in November, uh, you played in the New Hampshire Senate primary. You backed a candidate, a Republican, who was mounting a challenge to Scott Brown, who'd been kind of the anointed frontrunner for the Republican nomination for that Senate seat. And you did this because your guy had taken a pretty unusual position on campaign finance for a Republican. Yeah, Jim Rubin, the candidate we supported, was you know more conservative than Scott Brown. But he was also the only Republican running for Senate in the nation who made the way campaigns were funded an issue. And he supports the voucher proposal to create small-dollar public funding. We entered the race three weeks before the election. Our candidate had nine points. Scott Brown had 60-plus points. Um, nobody expects you're going to move a candidate from nine points to victory in three weeks. But our, but our objective, you know, again, is to demonstrate how even in a Republican primary, in a contested Republican seat, we could get a significant proportion of Republicans to make this issue primary for them and to vote on the basis of this issue. That, that was our measure. But that whole strategy got complicated by the fact that the failure in New Hampshire was going to be read as a failure of the project, which was going to make it that much harder to go out and raise the $5 million that I knew we needed to make the whole project go. So you jumped into that race. And you ran an ad targeting Scott Brown that clearly drew blood because the Brown campaign responded to you personally. Yep. Uh, what happened there? Scott Brown's campaign manager wrote this angry letter to me screaming about the fact that we had called Scott Brown a former lobbyist. And this whole thing blew up in the press about whether Scott Brown was in fact a former lobbyist or not. And we were a little bit astonished that Scott Brown's campaign would like to be spending the last couple of days of the election fighting over whether in fact he was a lobbyist. 
So for the record, Scott Brown was not a registered federal lobbyist, but he did have a job where he took money from interest groups in order to influence government decisions based on his relationships in the government. Absolutely. Ordinary people call that a lobbyist, you know, just like ordinary people call waterboarding torture um, or don't call ketchup a vegetable. Um, But, um, uh, yeah, um, he was a lobbyist. So when the Republican primary voters went to the polls in New Hampshire, they did what everyone expected, and they voted for Scott Brown for senator by, like, a huge margin. And the next day, you posted on your blog the kind of blog post you basically never see in politics, a blog post admitting failure. The headline was, We Lost badly. And you wrote that you shouldn't have even tried to fight in the New Hampshire primary. And you wrote, quote, the burden of this mistake rests with me and me alone. It was authentic, but frankly, it was really hard to read. Well, I, you know, it was important to me to speak to, you know, people in a, in a way that was, you know, honest about the failure. Um, You know, this business is so filled with the spin, you know, that doesn't matter what the reality is. There's always a reason why it's a good story um, or turns out to be the right decision or no mistakes were ever made or if they were they're not made by me Um, and I didn't feel any of that and you know I'm not a politician I'm not in this um, to be elected to anything so I was kind of free to say what I thought was true and what I thought was true was it was a mistake to be in that race in a way that would jeopardize the whole project um, because of the funding Um, and I should have seen that and I didn't a few days later, after the primary, you dug into the numbers and the data that had been collected about Mayday's effect on the race, and suddenly the picture changed. W- what did the data say? We hadn't won, but we had moved Republican voters in a way that, you know, still the political experts believe is impossible. We found that close to 40% of those voters said that our issue was the primary issue they were worried about corrupting influence of money and, you know, the role of lobbyists in our political system. And for those who said that, we beat Scott Brown by 18 points. Our campaign is about demonstrating to people who listen that if the issue is framed properly, it can capture a significant chunk of the vote. And even here, in this race that was so dominated by people's perception of which candidate would be able to defeat the Democrat in November... Even here, we moved this huge chunk of voters towards this issue and, in some sense, made it possible for us to believe that the messaging and the, and the intervention was actually connecting with the voters. So this is kind of the paradox of the whole project. You've always said that the goal with Mayday was to demonstrate that you could move the needle. You could show that this issue of money and politics can change people's minds and make a big difference in elections. And the idea was that if you could show that, then that could give politicians enough of an incentive to change their tune and that you could raise even more money for next time. And the New Hampshire race did show that. But still, you know, politics makes winners and losers, and your guy lost. And that's what people saw in the headlines. Mayday's candidate loses. Yeah. So fast forward to the general election, November 4th, the Republican landslide. The morning after, you sent out an email, and it wasn't, we lost badly. It wasn't, this was a mistake. It was, it was really short and kind of elegant, and it ended with, I'm thinking of the words of the American inventor Charles Kettering, who wrote, the only time you mustn't fail is the last time you try. Yeah. Um, the morning after the election, we strategized the team, and our view was there was going to be a ton of press out there about this devastating election, and we were going to wait until we had the data to say something. I actually regret that decision because 
you know, there was a bunch of people who were going to write something regardless of whether they had any facts to write on the basis of. Yeah, so people definitely did decide to write about it before the numbers were in. Two days after the election, an article ran in Politico by the writer Kenneth Vogel with the headline, How to Waste $10 Million. And it was basically a full-on attack. It was full of anonymous quotes from supposed, you know, campaign finance reform and transparency advocates uh, who called you an egghead and said, I wish Larry Lessig would stop. And they called Mayday a, a personal vanity project. What was your reaction to those attacks? Um, well, of course they hurt. Um, uh, it, it was a little weird um, because, you know, I guess that if I'd thought of what I've succeeded at, which I, you know, I'm not somebody who thinks a lot about what I've succeeded at. In fact, I think mostly about what I've not succeeded at. But if I've thought about what I've succeeded at, I thought that what I've done is find a way to talk about this that was pretty non-eggheady. Um, you know, I don't know anybody else in this movement who's got two million views of their talks. Um, so this was the thing I thought I'd worked hardest at. But what was was so striking to me about that piece was um, I just didn't know that's what journalists did. Um, we raised a whole bunch of money. The reform organizations inside of Washington thought we had stolen that money from them. You know, I don't think that's true. We raised money that they weren't going to raise. Um, so that was, you know, really depressing. It hurt. It was a punch in the gut. You know, it's not it wasn't devastating. I kind of don't live in that world, and, and the world I live in of, you know, three kids under the age of 12 um, is not affected by what's published in Politico, so um, uh, I, you know, retreated quickly to them. Uh, but, um, but it's nasty, and it's nastiest when it comes from your supposed friends. Here at Best of the Left, we know that it's not enough just to stay informed. You need to get active if you actually want to change the world for the better. That's why we promote great activism opportunities every chance we get. Also, I can only reach so many people on my own, but with your help, we can extend that reach. The episode show notes are most likely available on the device you're using to listen right now, and if they're not, you can see them on the website. Simply click the title of any segment you want to share and then easily post it to your social networks or send it directly to friends. You joining these actions and helping amplify the show to get even more people involved is critical to our mission to change the world for the better. Get started right now in the show notes on the device you're using, or visit the website from any device at bestoftheleft.com. There's a lot of stuff on the ballots, but I think the most interesting thing that is happening in this election is that this is the first time that the the billionaires and the big corporations have really figured out how to use Citizens United. The big question in my mind, and, and I think this is the biggest question of the election cycle, is how much money is being put into these races? Where is it coming from? Where is it going? And why? Washington, D.C. has become the best investment in the country. 
and state houses are, and and now judicial races a close second. If you're worth billions and you want to be worth more billions, invest in politicians. If you're a big corporation, I mean, in in California, you've got a, literally the oil industry trying to buy a community, basically, you know, buying the the, the political infrastructure of a community. There's this, but, but the really big story, I think, is this mind-boggling flood of money that is coming in at the last minute. And that's, that, you know, I said, I started this whole thing out by saying this is really the first election where they've figured out how to use McCutcheon and Citizens United. They did it, you know, fairly aggressively in 2012 and got a number of, elect, of Republicans elected. But this time it looks like, you know, American democracy is just plain old flat out for sale. Thanks to our Supreme Court. And what's astonishing is that there are, there are still candidates who are saying, I'm not for sale, and there are still people who will vote for them. What's astonishing is that the Koch brothers can spend several hundred million dollars and their buddies probably a billion dollars a thousand million dollars in this election cycle and yet they may not win everything but they're going to win a lot and they're going to win enough for them to make sure that their taxes aren't raised to make sure that there's no tax on carbon to make sure that the fossil fuel industry preserves the the fact that you send five hundred and twenty three dollars a year to Washington D.C. to redistribute to the coal, gas, and oil companies, whereas you only send seven dollars a year to redistribute to solar and wind and 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 development of other alternatives. That, in my mind, is the really, really, really big issue. I used to think that voting was a patriotic chore. Election day was drudgery. So that's where things were two days after the election. Mitch McConnell famously said in 1998, no one in the history of American politics has ever won or lost a campaign on the subject of campaign finance reform. And after November 4th, a lot of people said that Lessig had proven the conventional wisdom right. But the story is more complex than that. Because after the second day, the data came in. We've never said that this issue, you know, is alone enough to persuade 50% plus one of the voters. Who thinks there is such an issue out there? Our claim was that it was more salient, more powerful than many of the other issues. What the data show is the campaigns we were in, this was a primary issue of concern, like, you know, in the 70% range for each of the uh, races we're running in, uh, even in the race that we were still just an echo in, the New Hampshire Senate race, six weeks after our election, still 60% of the voters could recall the 
ads that we had done attacking Scott Brown for being a lobbyist and for his ties to money and politics. And for those people who remembered, 70% of them were viewing Brown unfavorably. We had defined that candidate on the basis of this issue, and that was important to the voters in, in that district. Um, and, and that was a similar you know, result that we saw in the other races that we were playing in. We found in the full range of races, when we got this issue before the voter, um, the voter recognized this was a reason to vote. If you take a step back, I mean, think about the debate and discussion about money and politics before May Day came along. Like, think back to last April when the Supreme Court made the McCutcheon decision that anyone could give unlimited amounts of money to politicians. It seemed like this issue was totally hopeless. But Lessig put this front and center. He went on just about every major outlet in America. He communicated about it, not in total Wonko jargon, but in language people could understand. And he inspired nearly 70,000 people to put their own money on the line, including tons of people who'd never been involved in politics before. And sure, those people might be unhappy about the election results, but based on the messages that Mayday's been getting, those people are not giving up. The community around this issue has gotten a giant injection of energy. And then there's another thing, maybe even bigger than the previous two. The same day I interviewed Larry for this episode, I ran into a friend of mine, Adam Green, and we got to talking about Mayday. I got to know Adam when he was working for MoveOn.org years back. Today, he's the co-founder of the Progressive Change Campaign Committee, which is one of the groups that organized campaigns for Mayday, running ads and orchestrating their strategy in several races. And as Adam was talking to me, I started thinking, this is really important, and Good Fight listeners need to hear this. So I whipped out my microphone and started recording. Uh, Any background noise you hear is probably my living room refrigerator. Mayday has a fundamentally different mission than many of the party committees. If you're the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, your job is to nibble around the edges, to pick up a couple seats in hopes that you might win a majority by a bare margin. For for anyone out there who wants to start a PAC, if you want to have a 100% win record, here's the easy way to do it. You endorse a Democrat in a deep blue state like New York, say Chuck Schumer, and you endorse a Republican in a deep red state like Texas, say Ted Cruz, and call it a day. You can say you have a win record. But what power did you build? That wasn't the long-term game that Lawrence Lessig and Mayday were playing. They were trying to fundamentally use the prism of a few races to impact many other people's behavior. You know, in this case, Mayday intentionally looked for races where not everybody in the world was involved, where Mayday was the clear cause of a politician scrambling in order to send a larger message to politicians. I've been told by a U.S. senator directly that the power that most super PACs have is not that they can play in every race. It's that they can play in a couple of races. And the game in Congress is just make sure they don't choose you, right? And that gives most super PACs disproportionate influence and power. Well, let's just apply that same theory for the good guys. That's what Mayday has now done for the entire reform community. Fred Upton, the chair of the powerful House Energy and Commerce Committee, was pretty much resting on his laurels, running kind of a couple fluff ads, not very much of, not very many of them, sitting on a million dollar, multi-million dollar war chest of special just money. And after Mayday got involved, kind of a sneak attack in the final month, the chairman of this powerful committee uh, freaked out, started airing TV ads against Mayday, started calling Mayday's donors to intimidate them, and most stark to his colleagues going forward, he drained his entire multi-million dollar war chest and the Koch brothers had to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to help bail him out 
So yes, he ultimately won, but he was forced to scramble for his political life. And the message, you know, the chatter around Congress will go forth that no matter how safe you think you are, no matter how powerful you are, no matter how big your special interest war chest is, if you're on the wrong side of the reform issue, you could be next to have to scramble for your political life. This is such a different narrative for what happened and what made it accomplished than you read in the press. What you're describing here is a shift, you know, starting in 2014 from now on. If you refuse to support campaign finance reform, you know that there's this big, bad, nasty super PAC that could come after you. Absolutely. Earlier in the day, when I talked to Larry Lessig, the Upton race was one of his favorite moments of the campaign. He was astonished to see that we were challenging him. You know, we ran ads where we were talking about the way he was taking money and then voting against the interest of people in his district. And it was as if this was the first time people in his district saw that. And it wasn't just Upton in Michigan, it was also South Dakota. Mike Rounds, Republican senator in a deep red state, everyone thought was a shoe-in for re-election. Mayday got involved, move on, a bunch of other groups jumped in, and suddenly Mike Rounds was using up his war chest to defend a seat that everyone thought was safe. It was on nobody's radar before Mayday got involved. Mayday was $1 million of a $2 million coalition of reformers. And right after this coalition got involved, the National Democratic Party did, the National Republican Party did, the NRA did, Rachel Maddow had had this race featured on the top of her show. And it, only after Republicans spent millions of dollars scrambling to resuscitate the Republican in that race did they win. The point was proven that Mayday can come into a, a Senate race and fundamentally be a game changer. That is something that will be remembered going forward. And again, what's the inoculation for politicians? Just sign on to campaign finance reform. And that might be the path of least resistance. And that's what Mayday accomplished in this election. My goal with this show is to inform, inspire, and activate listeners to push for positive change. With the support of listeners, I've been able to expand what we do here and make the show better over time. And the only way to continue doing that, to grow and improve, is with your support. I don't need a giant pile of money to run this show. I just need a steady, dependable stream of 5 and $10 monthly donations from people like you. For signing up, you'll also get access to special bonus content, including some behind-the-scenes stuff and more of my commentary. If you believe in the mission of this show as much as I do, please help it continue to grow and improve by becoming a member today. Details are on the membership page at bestofleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. Why is it we are failing? You as scholars and activists, we as journalists, in helping people understand that much of what happens to them is the consequence of how our elections are funded because many of the people that you care about voted against you. I don't think the people are confused about whether democracy is working for them. I think they understand the problem. What we've got to do is to give them a sense that there's a solution. We've got to prove that there's a way to fix this problem. And that's what, you know, lots of different efforts are trying to do, trying to give people a practical sense that there's something they can do. You know, when we marched in, in across New Hampshire, we would meet people on the street. There was such deep passion 
for finding a way to finally get back control of our government. There was no argument that we had to have with them to prove, look, here's a Princeton study that shows that they got the Princeton study got, before yeah. the Princeton study They were threatened. the Princeton study. Right. <laughs> and so, so it's just giving them hope, giving them a sense that there is something to do. And when we give people a map, a way to understand how it's possible, you know, we could fix 80% of this problem tomorrow with one statute that would establish a different way to fund campaigns. We don't have to change the Constitution what do you to do mean? that. You could do it without a Constitution? We yes. could pass yeah. small-dollar public funding of elections, even with this Supreme Court, tomorrow. What does that mean? Well, it means, for example, John Sarbanes has something called the Government by the People Act. And that act says small contributions, like in New York City, small contributions get matched by the government. In Sarbanes' case, up to nine to one. Or Republicans have begun to push the idea of vouchers. Give every voter a voucher, which they can use to fund campaigns. Now, the point is, both of those are perfectly constitutional. They could be passed tomorrow, and they would radically change the focus candidates now give to the tiny fraction of the 1% who fund their campaigns, because they'd be much more interested in talking to the many thousand who they need to fund their campaigns. And I mean, Larry and I really uh, share this belief that we need to communicate the solution. Um, because, I mean, I'll tell you, in New York City, we have a system like this, and it has transformed. Look, we don't have a perfect government, but well, it has. overwhelmed you, let's be honest. I mean, we do. I've been a supporter of public financing yes. in this city for a long time, but it doesn't work. When big money comes rolling in, as Larry said, like a tsunami. But what it has done is we have, uh, you know, as a feminist, public financing is a real feminist issue. Far more women are running for office under public financing systems because don't, you don't need access to the old boys club, the old power club. Yeah. Far more um, people of color are running for office. In fact, the city council is now a majority people of color in New York City because you don't need access to the, the same old boys club. I'm not saying it's fixed every problem, but it changes. If I want to recruit people to run, which I do, if you walk up to them and say, I want you to go out there and do this incredibly difficult, um, harrowing, exciting thing, and if you show that you have grassroots support, you'll have enough money to get heard. That's entirely different than I want you to go out there and do this exciting, harrowing thing. And half of your day, you have to spend begging at the feet of oligarchs and asking them for their permission to, uh, to run for office. And realistically, though, if you have a statute or law, a piece of legislation that could solve some of the problem, not all of it, you have no hope of getting it through in a Congress that's run by Senator Mitch McConnell, who more than any other man in Congress today has enshrined the notion of, of, of monopoly as the game of politics. No, that's right. But we can imagine in 2016 changing control of Congress and critically recruiting a number of principled Republicans to the idea that this corrupt system is corrupt then I think it's completely possible. And more and more, grassroots Republicans are recognizing that they're not going to get what they want either under this system where they have to sell out to the big interests. Look at David Bratt's victory over Eric Cantor. In, know, the, the, Republican in the Republican primary, he's now in Congress he's by beating Congress. the major leader of the House. That's right, and what his argument was is that Eric Cantor had become a crony capitalist because he spent all of his time sucking up to the Wall Street bankers rather than advancing conservative causes. Now, the conservatives are increasingly getting this, just as the liberals have understood this. And if we can begin to... Get people to recognize that, look, we can differ on fundamental issues, but this really fundamental issue, we don't differ about. We have to find a way to make a democracy responsive to the but, voters. But I, I want to also talk about the Democratic Party here, though, because there's a real split within the Democratic Party between this Wall Street wing and the progressive populist wing. And I'm a Democrat. Um, 
And uh, you may not know this, but in 1924, I believe, the, uh, a part of the Democratic Party platform was public financing of elections. I did. I was just yeah. in kindergarten. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I actually think, you know, when we look at Democratic losses, it's in part because enough to, some Democrats aren't telling the truth about what's happening in the economy. And people are going to respond. If they hear a candidate who's lying to them about everything being okay, instead of some real truth-telling and some real truth-telling about what's wrong, with politics and what's wrong with power. And if Democrats can truly embrace public financing as a root issue, not as a sort of fussy side reform, but as the root issue which enables Democrats to actually care about you know, what's happening in working class people's lives, I think you're going to see a lot more excitement. It's the sense that Democrats aren't really telling you the truth. Um, and or they're they're really working for Wall Street and they say they're not that I think turns people off and I, I think there's an extraordinary opportunity. Look, I know the odds are low. Um, I uh, Vaclav Havel um, has this wonderful. I'm, I'm not going to get Champion it exactly. Champion of freedom right. in the Czech Republic. He says this thing about hope, which I find very powerful. That hope is not the same thing as optimism. Uh, optimism is the belief something is likely to happen. Hope is the belief that it is possible and it is worth doing. I see the power structures in this country, and if I'm going to be telling the truth to people, I'll tell them, honestly, we're in tough shape. Now, the house is on fire in terms of our democracy. Uh, we, we are flatlining in terms of responsiveness. But we still have opportunities if we take the moment, take this uh, moment of extraordinary frustration and engage people directly on the root issue honestly and provide a path through. And I think we have to go that way instead of these half measures that aren't really engaging the root issue. So the story of the 2014 elections is the story of money. That's what John Stewart said, and he's largely right. Uh, money with huge victories all across the country. But what is not known as well is the people fighting behind the scenes to get money out of politics. It's not just Wolfpack, it's a number of groups. And guess what? They all had a good deal of success. So here's where you're going to see the story you won't see anywhere else. First of all, let's give credit to represent.us. They were fighting on a local level. Now, they were fighting for a law that's pretty harsh to get you know, corruption to end in a particular city in Tallahassee. God, it's not going to work in Tallahassee. That's what everybody told them. Here's the rule that they were pushing for. A new ethics rules will limit campaign contributions to city candidates to $250 per donor. What? <laughs> They're not going to pass that. How else? You can't buy people for just $250. How would you corrupt them? How would you bribe them? That doesn't make sense. Now, it would also provide each voter with a tax rebate of up to $25 for campaign contributions. But that's not going that's public financing that's taking money and giving it to politicians. No, people don't want that. Create an ethics board and require the enactment of an ethics code that includes a conflict of interest policy. Now, the politicians don't want the ethics board. But now, here's the thing. They didn't need the politicians. It was a ballot initiative. So they took it straight to the people. 
and they put together a right-left coalition that I'm going to tell you about in a second. Uh, but mainly, they just took it to the voters. So, well, how do the voters of Tallahassee? I mean, Tallahassee is pretty conservative, right? Why would conservatives be in favor of corruption? Of course, they're against corruption. It passed easily. Sixty-seven percent said yes. The city charter should be amended to make sure that we get corruption out of politics. Conservatives don't like crony capitalism. They don't like corruption either. So I love what Represent.us did. And one of the important lessons here is you can win at the local level. And if you take it to the people, they're all on our side. Republicans, libertarians, Democrats, actual voters, of course want to get money out of politics. Of course they want free and fair elections. Of course they want to end the corruption, right? Now, who are the uh, coalition that they put together here? Look at this. Tea Party Network, yes, and Florida Alliance of Retired Americans, League of Women Voters, and Common Cause. You want to talk about odd partners there. Uh, yes, you've got the most right-wing groups working with the most left-wing groups. You know why? Because they care about our democracy and they all hate corruption. God bless their hearts. So, by the way, represent.us, they're not done. You think they're going away? No, this is a great success. So they're going to take it to more cities, and they're going to take it to more states. They've got two state initiatives coming up in the next set of elections. In Montana, it's not a big deal. They're only polling at 85% support for their next initiative. And by the way, Republicans support it just as much as Democrats do, because we all hate corruption. Obviously, if you give money to the politicians, the big donors, you buy them. That's legalized bribery. We don't want that. So God bless our hearts for fighting the right way on the issue of corruption, doing it at the local level. And they make a great point. Look, this is how on the issue of gay marriage and on the issue of marijuana. You did ballot initiatives. You got cities to pass it. You got states to pass it until you got a lot of momentum. So uh, very happy with their fight. Now, you also have Mayday Pack. Now, they didn't win all their elections that they were going for. No question about that. But let me tell you the fact that they did have. First of all, they won. Uh, they were also totally nonpartisan. They won with a Republican, Walter Jones, in North Carolina. Now, I disagree with uh, at least 90% of what Walter Jones says in his uh, policy positions. But he is a rare principled conservative that's actually in Washington. Plenty of principled conservatives across the country, but they're not usually in Washington. Walter Jones, great job. They helped him in his primaries against a Republican opponent, and then he won easily in the general election. Now, speaking of primaries, they also helped a Democrat, Ruben Gallego in uh, Arizona, and his primary issue was get money out of politics, free and fair elections. They helped him in a primary, they, and he won the primary, and then he wound up winning the general elections. Are you sensing a theme here? If you're not, let me give you one more. Scott Brown. Now, they went after him in the primary. They didn't beat him in the primary, but they damaged him badly. So that Scott Brown was pretty much the only Republican that did not win a close election in 2014 because he came out hobbled out of his primary and Gene Shaheen won the general election. So those are some pretty significant accomplishments. Now, another guy that they targeted, Fred Upton, is a very important politician. He's the head of the House Energy and Commerce uh, Committee, right? So. When they targeted him, he got really panicked. He spent all of his war chest that he had accumulated that he was going to give to other politicians who were also in favor of money in politics. He had all this money, but and he had to spend it in order to win his own election. But I think more importantly, by the end, he was saying, what, me? No, uh, yeah, I, I want to get money out of politics. I'm for, I'm for campaign finance reform. I'm against corruption. Really, you haven't voted that way at all. That's why they ran the campaign against you. But all of a sudden, when you spend money against them and you scare them a little bit, Two twos, as my ex-girlfriend from Jamaica would say. 
they come around, okay? So I think they've had some really good successes. And then, of course, if you watch the Young Turks, I told you what Wolfpack did on election day. We cleaned house. We went three for three. Where we got Steve Barry, who was a citizen who helped us pass our resolution in Vermont uh, to get an amendment, to get money out of politics. Uh, he was just a pastor, a minister in Vermont. He's now a state legislator, uh, thanks to our help. And Tim Smith was the guy who introduced our resolution in New Hampshire. We helped protect him. These were all victories that were uh, under a 100-vote margin. So our efforts there clearly made a difference. And finally, Steve Valancourt was the main guy who uh, posed us in New Hampshire and tabled our resolution. That turned out, about, turned out to be his worst vote ever. He was a six-term incumbent. He's now former Representative Valancourt. We sent him home because of that vote. You vote against us, and there will be consequences. And we laid those consequences on right on top of Valancourt's head. So the next time you're a politician, remember how Fred Upton had to spend all of his money and then pretend to be in favor of getting money out of politics at the end. Remember what the damage that was done to Scott Brown in the primaries. Remember what Mayday Pack did, and and but what Represent US dot uh, US can do in your city, in your state. If you oppose them, you're going to oppose two thirds of your, at a minimum, two thirds of your voters. Sometimes up to eighty five percent. Definitely remember Valancourt. Now, one last thing. I want to give you a Muhammad Ali quote because it summarizes the efforts of all of these groups that are all fighting from different fronts to get us free and fair elections. And I love them all. Obviously, we start a wolf pack. We want you guys to join that. We want you to be a member. We want you to be a supporter and a volunteer. But if you work from a different direction with these other great groups, great, great. We love that. We need all the fighters we can get. Now, here's the quote I love. It's from Muhammad Ali. He said, the fight is won or lost far away from the witnesses, behind the lines, in the gym, and out there on the road, long before I dance under those lights. No truer words have ever been spoken. Our guys uh, in Wolfpack, they're up there in the freezing cold in Vermont, New Hampshire. They're knocking on every door of all the people in those particular districts. And when people saw our army there, they couldn't believe it. And they were buzzing on election night. One of our volunteers, they didn't know that he was a Wolfpack guy, had somebody say to him, did you see what those Wolfpack guys were doing? Yeah, he saw, because we're everywhere. In one case, in a different state, our volunteers so dwarfed every other set of volunteers, literally over 10 times as many volunteers. A guy keeping track of volunteers to go knock on doors was like, okay, that's Wolfpack. Oh, hey, that's two for three for Wolfpack. I'm going to stop counting. <laughs> and they just poured in and they're like, we've never seen anything like this. We are legion. <laughs> we are everywhere and we're on the ground. You got to understand something, man. I, as I talked to the guys who were there, uh, Wolf Team 6 in New Hampshire, <laughs> one of them canceled their vacation and flew out to New Hampshire. Actually, a couple of them did that and did this instead. In the beginning, it's freezing cold and away from the lights, they're knocking on doors in the middle of the night and they're wondering, is this worth it? But you, when you get that sweet taste of victory, <laughs> nothing better in the world, okay? And as one of our volunteers said, it feels so good to get the power back. This is supposed to be our government. So when we exercise our will, to direct that government, it feels phenomenal. So the person who took that vacation later said, oh, 
best vacation I ever had. <laughs> and one member of Wolf Team 6 couldn't make it, and he'll be out there in the other fights. And he's like, oh, the legendary Valancourt fight. <laughs> the guy was in office since the 1990s. People up in New Hampshire were like, what in the world happened to Valancourt? Here's what happened. Wolfpack happened. So to all these politicians who underestimated us, whether it's Represent.us or Mayday Pack or Wolfpack, rest assured, we are here and we're coming. We're coming to your house. And soon, if you uh, defy us and you decide, no, you like corruption, you like the legalized bribery, you want to keep taking that, well, somebody's going to come knocking on your door and it's going to be us. A couple of weeks ago, I did an episode on the educational system, and there was one segment on there talking about these uh, charter schools, not all of them, but some charter schools have these hyper strict policies in place. One example is like a kid uh, got a good score on his test, and so he shouted out like in celebration that he got a good score, and that got him a suspension for speaking out, uh, just as one little example. And so th the comments made on the show were sort of along the lines of how creepy that is that these schools are just sort of trying to make these docile uh, students who are just ready to be worker drones and, and not, you know, ever question authority or anything like that. And I commented at the end that there's actually sort of two, two ways to look at it. One is, yeah, I mean, it's sort of a messed up sort of authoritarian way to, you know, indoctrinate these kids to respect authority. Uh, but the other side is that these uh, charter schools are often servicing sort of low income, often minority students, and they would argue, uh, sometimes at least, that they're sort of trying to prepare these students for the real world in which if they do not respect authority, they could be killed by police or, you know, never get a job or just all of those sorts of things that play into all sorts of racism and classism and all of that. And uh, so I got a couple of excellent responses to that topic, but they sort of got set aside when the tsunami of voicemails came in on the uh, discussion of uh, religious extremism. So now I'm going back and sort of picking up the pieces where we left them. Hey, Jay, it's Wade. I was listening to your commentary and, and well, the clip on the last show there about the, the hyper-disciplined schools and, you know, the way you were describing it, the way the, the clip was describing it. And I did a little research, not a whole lot, but a little bit. And, you know, the, the first thought that, that struck me was, man, that sounds an awful lot like Marine Corps boot camp, which was a terrible experience. And it dawned on me, though, that, you know, I understand that what they're trying to do is lay, you know, they could say maybe lay a foundation of, of discipline and structure and all that. But the thing about it is, is that, you know, if you're comparing the two while you're in boot camp, you know, you can't scratch, you can't, you know, move your eyes left to right. You certainly can't speak. You know, you always have to stare straight ahead and all that. But the second you get out of that, they start that confidence building. You know, the, the motto is, uh, improvise, adapt and overcome, you know, have confidence in yourself. It becomes less of what you can't do into what can you do. And, indeed, you can do this. It's all about inspiring that and inspiring that independent thought. You know, 
have an initiative. You'll often hear somebody say in the in the Marine Corps, you know, good initiative, bad judgment. So when something goes wrong, at least you took the initiative and tried something. And so having that strict discipline is fine, but you've got to build something on top of that. If, if all you do is just have the strict discipline, then at the end of the day, you just have a foundation and nothing built on top of it. And so they think that they're helping these kids or saving these kids, but in reality, they're crippling them. Because that discipline and that structure is not always going to be there. Eventually, they're going to be adults. They're going to go out on their own. So, you know, like I'm saying, you've got to graduate to a a more independent thought. That's just how the Marine Corps does it, which is what this struck me as. Like, every day's a boot camp for these kids. And that that also assumes that it's okay to treat kids like they're in boot camp, which I'm not really on board with. But, uh, you know, using their argument, fine, this is what we have to do, but... There has to be a secondary process, or else what's the point of the discipline? I, I don't, I don't understand that. I guess, and so that would be my uh, my comment on that. Um, it was a good show, Jay, and I really appreciate it. Have a good one, Jay. It's Ryan from Phoenix. Love the podcast. Just wanted to respond to a voicemail or the your ending information that was left on the end of the widgets education podcast so that was a great podcast um husband of a educator so i definitely appreciate all the messages that came through there just wanted to reflect on your take at the end where you're talking about this charter school system that's trying to keep uh, kids alive through these strict uh racist kind of uh policies and it goes beyond uh keeping them alive it's also about keeping them employable and giving them a chance at our current system's imperfect uh, evaluation of, of students and what makes them employable and showing that they're reliable and showing that they are docile and showing that uh, they can run a machine and run a widget like uh, George Carlin kind of made very clear in that segment. So just wanted to add that aspect to it and, and you know, and you can't... Uh, you, you almost have to feel a little sorry for administrative doers, you know, uh, participants in the charter school system or any school system that are trying their best to work and, and prepare kids for an imperfect world. And it kind of comes down to the same trade-offs that we have voting for Democrats versus third-party green, truly liberal candidates. And it's that trade-off of... It's an imperfect system, and we know that a majority of left-leaning people are going to be voting Democrats, and do we join that chorus, or do we deviate from that? And it's, and it's this imperfect voting for Democrats that, you know, aren't necessarily looking out for your best interest, and they have their pockets lined, and are part of the big campaign corporate fucked up system, but it is what it is, and sometimes we swallow it and, and do our best to, to vote in somebody who's better than a Republican. And I think that's the same kind of situation that we find that the charter school administrators find themselves in and they're just trying to do their best and give these kids the best possible outcome given the fucked up system that we live in. Uh, That's it, bye. Hi Jay, it's Aaron from Philly. This is regarding the most recent episode about uh, climate change and the denial of it coming from the right, the fact that they're taking over the Senate, the fact that James Inhofe, of all people, is going to be taking over the Environmental Committee in the Senate. There's a quote that came to mind from Upton Sinclair. It's one of his more famous ones. The 
quote going, it's impossible to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. I, I do believe uh, what the one uh, segment guest on the Bill Moyer show said, that some of folks really don't care. Um, certainly some of the brighter bulbs in the Senate know and don't care, which is in itself unconscionable. But I think there's also just a certain amount of of the you know, Republican leadership that are really just that ignorant. They really don't know any different, and they're getting paid very well to not understand it any better, which in itself is also pretty unconscionable. You know, the fact that these folks are literally willing to let the world burn, as we're seeing in Australia and in uh, the Western United States and so on, I, it just it boggles the mind. I don't even know how to understand it, except that they often say that, you know, you often hear people say, oh, well, you know, history is going to judge these people. And I think they're beginning to count on the fact that there won't be any people around to write that history, so there won't be anything that they need to be vindicated from. I just needed to air this out. I'm really, really angry about the fact that this is being allowed to happen when there's absolutely no question that it's happening and we know why. So... Uh, thanks again for letting me air that out, and uh, stay awesome. Hi, this is David from Albuquerque, New Mexico, and about that the street harassment video, you know, I I didn't feel entirely comfortable with it, and I wasn't, you know, I couldn't quite figure out why. And then they they made the excuse of there wasn't good footage of the white people harassing the women. And, you know, that's lame. I, I don't believe that for a second. You know, well, then reshoot. You know, it's just, it's just pretty straightforward. Because you want to have a, a, diversi a diversity of perpetrators. And that being said, the narrative by William J. Jackson on your podcast, I couldn't agree more. I think he really identified every single part of it. And his analysis was spot on, and uh, it's just too bad that, that they didn't do it correctly, because the, the street harassment is a real issue, and it needs to be addressed, and it's too bad that they didn't do it properly. That's all. I love your show. Talk to you. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible. Thanks to Katie Klobusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. And now I want to leave you with an activist call to action. It is my favorite type of call to action. I've only done it one other time when it seemed appropriate. It seems appropriate again now. Uh, but first, just a quick recap of this whole May Day thing. To be clear, they only started their campaign about eight months ago, and their plan was always at least a two-step plan, a long-term plan going to at least 2016. And the 2014 election was always, always, always intended to be a learning experience. They wanted to you know, try a, a strategy out, make some mistakes, learn from them, get better, and move on. That's what 2014 was all about for them. So, you know, of course, I'm disappointed, but not at all surprised to hear how many people were ready to jump the gun and declare the experiment a failure after only step one. But 
since they wanted this to be a learning experience, what I would like to do is to ask you guys to help emphasize that one of the things that they should learn from this is that there are people out there like me and hopefully like you who recognize that we are building a movement and that we need to be in it for the long haul. So you can send them an email directly at info at mayday.us. You can also just go to mayday.us and they have a contact form there. Send them a thank you note. Tell them you know that the next time they put out a call for, for help, you'll be there. Uh, the next time they launch a fundraiser, you've got their back. You'll pitch in. I mean, it's almost Thanksgiving. Just tell them that you're thankful for the work they're doing. You know, human frailty is a totally real thing with real consequences. And, you know, I don't know anyone personally at Mayday Pack. I don't know Lawrence Lessig. I don't know what the mood is like, uh, you know, amongst their staff. But what I know is that sending a thank you note to them can do nothing but good for the people working at absolute ground zero to fundamentally fix our electoral system. And, and you know, it'll make them feel good. It'll make you feel good. It's the right thing to do. If there was ever a time when someone needed uh, a little bit of a pick-me-up and a thank-you note, I think it's them, and I think it's now. So again, contact them at info at mayday.us or through a contact form at mayday.us. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your account at donateyouraccount.com slash left. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of a Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestofaleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained We can't see past our own sad stories And wonder what we're missing Stories and forget who it is before